Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil series. We live in the middle of a war between truth and lies that is millennia old, but at least feels more acute to me than any time in my short life. Deception is at the root of almost every single problem that we face in our society and in our soul. And in this cultural moment of truth decay and pathological lies and the whole thing that is our new normal, I find Jesus' teachings more compelling than ever before. Jesus and the writers of the Bible and most church leaders down through history warn us constantly of the danger of deception, false doctrine, false teachers, denial of the truth, lies, yet in the modern Western world, all too often, all of those warnings fall on deaf ears. Read the New Testament. A constant theme all the way through is the danger of false teaching and false teachers. The only people who sound that alarm anymore are pretty much angry fundamentalists, and we just filter them out. So often, we think we have moved on, and we have not, but for Jesus, deception is at the root of all that is messed up right now, because it's deception. Jesus does all this work to tie deception to temptation to sin. All temptation to sin is, in a sense, the temptation to believe a lie, to believe an illusion about reality. And more than that, Jesus ties both this deception and with it its temptation to a creature that he calls the devil. Now on that note, last week, if you were here, we kicked off our practice on fighting the devil by saying that what comes to mind when most of us, and again, myself included, think about the devil or what in the charismatic tradition is called spiritual warfare, is, I don't know, demonization or a disease or a disaster like the tsunami in Indonesia last week or some dark, scary story from the middle of the night and a child in fear. And honestly, I think there is legit stuff in all of that mixed in, of course, with plenty of paranoia and superstition and an overactive imagination for some. But we said, and this is my hypothesis, that all of that stuff, there's legit in there, but it's second tier or third or fourth or fifth. That the devil's primary stratagem, his signature kind of go-to move is lies. Or to drill down, as we said last week, it's deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Now, this week the plan is to go deeper into that hypothesis because the tricky thing about lies is they masquerade as truth, right? What's the saying? We don't know what we don't know. So we were sitting around as a community Tuesday night after dinner and, you know, working through the practice and the listening prayer and the triad. It was, we had a great time, but the common refrain was, man, this is so good, but it's so hard because it's hard to identify lies that we believe because we don't think they are lies. We think they are true, right? So this is the tricky thing. And not only is the devil a liar in Jesus' language, don't, it's not me, that's Jesus, but he is, I would argue, a really good one. He is well aware that one, the best lies are the ones that are mostly true, right? So most of us are smart enough, we don't fall for some outlandish, like ridiculous claim. If you really want to deceive somebody, make a statement that is 98% true, and just make sure the 2% that's off is the 2% that matters most. That's just a little free advice for those of you that want to grow in your ability to deceive, just a little (laughs) 
free, just here to help you out, right? Secondly, the next best lies are the ones that are true but are not the whole truth are one side of a two-sided conversation. Yes, and this, in my opinion, is pretty much every single political conversation I hear right now. Like there's so much polarization and you hear one side and you're like, well, that sounds kind of wonky, but that sounds true. And then you hear the other side, you're like, that sounds wonky too, but that sounds true. And there's no space right now for the both and, for nuance in the middle. Or third, the temptation is to oversimplify the complexity of the human experience. This is the yes, but. So complex conversations about gender or sexuality or socioeconomic theory or politics or race or whatever are just like limited to this hashtag slogan in 140 characters, which is right up the devil's alley. Even with 280 or whatever it is now, he can still work with that. It's not a problem, right? Like the human condition and the human experience and evil and suffering are way more complex than a slogan. So all that to say, this is really hard and we have more work to do. To continue, home base for our working theory of how to follow Jesus in the fight against the devil is John chapter 8, hopefully open in front of you. This is Jesus' most in-depth or one of his most in-depth teachings on the devil. Let's read it one more time, not the whole thing, but just the key section. Now, in context, if you were here last week, remember this is Jesus speaking not to some hardcore atheists like out there, but to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Take a look at 44. You belong to your father, the devil. Not what you want to hear from Jesus of Nazareth. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now, what Jesus does here is crazy, brilliant, ninja, awesome. He ties the devil's primary strategy of lies, this whole thing, to the story of the snake in the Garden of Eden. Let's go there for a little bit more depth of insight. Turn to Genesis chapter three to the left in your Bible. It's on page three. Now, um, before we read this story, let me just preface it. As, especially if you're new to the Bible, as a late modern Westerner, it's really easy to write off this story. It's ancient literature that we have no equivalent for. And with this story to write off the Bible as a whole, as weird or nonsense, I mean, there's a talking snake on page three. And a lot of us are like, I'm done, I'm out, right? But however you read this story, all right? Honestly, I don't really care that much. If you read it as history or mythology, like you actually imagine a snake like saying, whatever a snake sounds like, I don't know. Um, Or... Or if you read it as ancient Near Eastern imagery for spiritual evil, as an apologetic against Babylonian myth stuff, however you read it, I'm more inclined to believe the latter than the former, but that's a question about genre of literature, not about theology. Either way, listen carefully, the story is true. In fact, it has resonated for millennia as one of, if not the most true diagnosis of the human condition of any other story on offer. Let's just read it again. Chapter three, verse one. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. That word crafty in Hebrew can also be translated cunning or wily or deceitful. So this creature that is later, not here called the devil, but is later identified by Jesus and other writers as the devil, This creature is wily. He, she, it is a con artist, a sham, like that's the thing. What cunning, deceitful. 
He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Just an open-minded question. Now notice, whatever this creature is, it's not just an ordinary snake. People in the ancient world were just as intelligent as we are. They were well aware that snakes don't talk. It's not like we figured that out in the Enlightenment. Like, no, we know snakes don't talk. Like, people were aware of that for a very long time which is why Eve is not at all surprised in the story too. The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. For you will not certainly die. The snake said to the woman, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. As we said last week, when this creature the snake or the personification of the devil, when he comes to bring ruin to Eve's soul and with it to society as a whole, notice he comes at her not with a stick or a gun or a sword, but with an idea. Like this is how he brings ruin into the world with an idea, more specifically with the deceptive idea or a lie that as we go on starts to play to her heart, to her desire. Look at six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also there's our word, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, then the man and his wife, keep reading, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to them, where are you? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I, I was naked. I hid. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I told you? Don't. The man said, the woman you put here with me. You have to love it, right? Double, like double blame ship. The woman that you put here with me. I was just, it was an honest nap, not my responsibility. You know that story, right? On a serious, we laugh, but honestly, this is the root problem of most relationships is blame shifting, the inability to take responsibility, right? So the woman you gave me here with me, all of that, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and then I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, pay careful attention, the snake, what, deceived me and I ate. This is proof right here that ignorance is enough to make us sin. You can have good heart with good intentions and still mess up your mind and your body. The snake deceived me and I ate it, a disobedience. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, all wild animals. You crawl in your belly, eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put, listen, enmity between you and the woman. Another way to translate, I will put a fight. I will put a war between you, this creature, the devil, and the woman here, an archetype of all humanity, between your offspring or your seed or your descendants and her offspring or seed or descendants. He, notice it's singular, he, as in her offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel, which a number of scholars argue is like the first hint we get in all the library of scripture of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, listen carefully. That closing line right there in 15 is what Jesus is referring to hundreds, thousands of years later in John 8. In fact, he calls, this is so punk rock, he calls the religious leaders at the temple in Jerusalem the seed of the snake. 
They claim to be the seed of Abraham. We're the descendants of Abraham. Jesus says, no, you're not. Biologically, you are. But spiritually, you are the seed, you are the offspring, you stand in the line of the snake from the story. And then Jesus ties the devil and his stratagem of lies to this story right here. And when we take a closer look at the story, we start to get our head around the nature of the lies that the devil proffers. Now, we've said this before, but if you study philosophy or whatever, there are essentially three great questions in life. Who is God? Who are we? Or at an individual level, who am I? And then what is the good life? Or how do we live? Put another way, questions about theology, questions about anthropology, or again, at an individual level, about our identity, and then questions about morality or sociology, how do we live together in the world? The devil comes at Eve with lies in all three categories. Who is God or our theology? Verse five, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Translation, God isn't who he claims to be. He's holding out on you. This is deception, by the way, at its best. It is a distortion of who God is the distortion of a vision of a God who is generous with good intentions toward Eve and Adam and all of humanity into this God who is petty or is jealous or doesn't really know or you know better than this God. It is this gross distortion. Who are you or anthropology? What does it mean to be a human being? Verse five, you will be like God. Translation, you're not a human being with a place in the cosmos below the creator and above the creation with both potential and limitations, both image of God and made from the dust, with design in your mind and your body itself and your sexuality and all that you are. No, you can be, you can ascend to the high. You can be whatever the heck you want. Transcend and transgress all of your limitations. Be and do whatever you want to be and do. Be true to yourself. Go with your gut, listen to yourself. Does any of this sound familiar? This is not late modern Western secular ideas. These are ancient primal ideas. Finally, question, what is the good life or our morality? Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Translation, hey, ignore all of these other trees in the garden that have God's full blessing and yield life, and instead here's the one tree that does not have God's blessing, and that he claims the yield of it is death. Look at this bright, shiny thing. Eat this, have this, do this, experience this, believe this, go here, go there, and then you will be happy. This, or these, are still the devil's go-to lies. Lies about who God is, about who we are, what it means to be a human being, and who you are as a human being, and about what the good life is, what it is that actually is the happy, full life. Now the exact nature of his lies change from generation to generation, and culture to culture, and even demographic to demographic but they always run along these lines. Secular society, which is of course the air that we breathe in a Portland or in the West, is an attempt to answer that first question, who is God, in a negative. Who is God? There is no God. He, she, it, whatever is a myth from a pre-modern, pre-scientific age, now we know better. Secularism is an attempt to live 
as an entire society as if there is no God, whether in full-on atheism, we don't even believe there is such a thing, or just the more popular agnosticism of, ah, if he, she, it, whatever is up there, who the heck cares? Which is a disaster because the next two questions, who are we and what is the good life, are based on your answer to the first one. Another way to say that is our morality is based on our anthropology, which in turn is based on our theology. Again, another way to put that is what we believe about the good life is based on what we believe about what it means to be human, what we think a human being is, which is in turn based on what we believe about God or no God. Is there a creator and a creation Or is there just evolutionary theory, the animal kingdom of which we are at the top, and blind chance? Radically different answer to one question. Think about it, this is basic math, right? If there is a creator, then there is design. If there is design, if like you're not an accident, if somebody like made you, however, whenever, whatever process, just there's, then there's intent for all of you, all, every aspect of who you are. If there is intent, if there is a way that this creator designed you to flourish and thrive, then there is morality. There is right, there is wrong, there is good, there is evil, there is life, there is death, there is flourishing, there is pain. If there is morality, then there is accountability. And human beings, all of us, avoid accountability like the plague. But if there's no creator, If this is just one happy accident or unhappy accident, depending on what family or socioeconomic bracket or whatever you were born into, if this is just probability and statistics, if Malcolm was right, life finds a way. If there's no design, there's just, you know, whatever, evolutionary theory. If there's no intent, there's just survival of the fittest, and now that the earth, according to some people, is overpopulated, so we're free to just jettison the intent of biology as well as psychology, then there is, of course, no morality. Who are you to say what's right and what's wrong, which means there's no accountability. Who are you to judge me? Keep your laws off of my body. What I do is what I do. All we have is Twitter feeds with alternative facts and French philosophers who deconstruct the world and leave it in ashes. Do you see it? This strategy is who knows how old. It's primal, it's ancient. But it's still, in our model, modern, sophisticated, educated Western world, it still works like a charm. Now, here's the question, why? Why this strategy? Why come with an idea, with a lie? Why not something else? Why is it deceptive ideas that play to disorder desires that are normalized in a sinful society? Um, and why do we still fall for it? Who knows how many millennia later, why do we still fall for this ploy? None of you are asking this question, but I'm about to take an hour and answer it for you, all right? (laughs) Um, This is where I wanna go with the rest of our time. Here is my thesis, and please listen carefully. I would argue it's because it is by the spirit and truth that we are transformed into the image of Jesus and set free to live in line with all that is good in the world. And it is by isolation and lies that we are deformed into the image of the devil and enslaved in a life of evil and death. Now, let me parse that out for the next four hours. Um, 
no, 20 minutes. First, spirit and truth. Man, I wish I had more time here, but I wish I had time to take you through the Bible and a you know, quick study, but all sorts of leading experts in spiritual formation, in psychology, in behavioral economics, have come to realize that we are transformed, for better or for worse, in our case as apprentices of Jesus, into the image of Jesus by spirit and truth. Now by spirit, we mean, I love Dr. Gordon Fee's definition of the spirit of God, is God's empowering presence. One theological definition of spirit is unembodied personal power. So when you hear the spirit of God, what we mean is the presence and with it the power of God himself. And truth, as we said last week, is reality or that which corresponds to reality. We said again last week that reality is what you bump into when you're wrong. And we need both spirit and truth. Think about it. Spirit without truth has no meaning. So think of a person just sitting in a room with you. If you don't know them, it's creepy. And if you do know them, say you're in suffering or whatever and it's a friend or a family member, then it's a comfort to you just to be with family or friends, but it's not life-changing. If they are silent, if they're mute, if there's presence, but there's no truth, there's no meaning, it's not life-changing. On the flip side, Truth without spirit is cold and cruel and not helpful at all. Nobody has ever said to me, I was transformed by reading Wikipedia, (laughs) right? There's no Encyclopedia Britannica that ever like, my life was like, never, because there's no spirit. There's no presence to show you, to lead you and guide you into the right, to pastor you into the right truth at the right time. So all I'm saying is we need both spirit and truth. Or again, to drill down, another way to say that is we need both presence and meaning, meaning to life, to what it means to be human, to who am I, to what is life about, what is my suffering about? Or still other language, we need both relationship with the Spirit of God and we need the reality of God's view. This is why Jesus comes as a human and as a teacher. As a human, he comes to give spirit or presence or relationship. He moved into the neighborhood. As a teacher, he comes to give truth or reality or meaning to life. Now, a few examples to just show you why this is so true. Um, For a number of us, myself included, therapy has been one of the most life-changing experiences of my entire life. Think about therapy. It's spirit, at least good therapy, is spirit and truth. When I'm with my therapist, who is this 70-year-old, wicked smart, PhD, Quaker, second coming of Christ kind of guy, I am in the presence of spirit, somebody who for seven decades has been apprenticing under Jesus of Nazareth, has become everything that I ache to grow and mature into, and has a power and authority in his own spirit, this life energy where I feel safe, I feel felt, and I, just to be in his presence, and the same is true as many of you, I am, is transformative, and then he's speaking truth into my life. Mental maps that correspond to reality, meaning to my life, meaning to my suffering, and it is transformative. M. Scott Peck, in The Road Less Traveled, which has become, I think, one of my top 10 favorite books, defined mental health as an ongoing process of dedication to reality at all costs. 
Again, mental health is an ongoing process of dedication to reality at all costs. He also defined all pathology as the inability to accept reality. So as we encounter spirit and truth, or presence and meaning, we are transformed. Therapy is one example. This also, by the way, is why bad therapy is so toxic. You can't recommend therapy any more than you can recommend church. There are some therapists in some churches that will change your life for the better and others that will destroy you. Because few things are more dangerous than you get alone in a room with spirit, with presence, you feel safe, you feel felt, you open up the deepest secrets of your life, and then if lies are put into you, few, and there's nobody there to confirm or correct, few things are more toxic and lethal to your human flourishing. This, another example, is why parenting has a greater effect on who we become and who we are than pretty much any other thing in our entire life. Think about what is good parenting. Good parenting is spirit and truth. You're brought up in the presence of a loving mother or father, hopefully both, and then you are brought up to live in congruence with reality, with truth, and to thrive, and truth is constantly spoken over you. Truth about who God is, who you are, and what the good life is. Bad parenting is the exact opposite. It's no presence and it's lies. It's an absentee, mom and dad divorced when I was whatever, dad was gone, mom was gone, nobody, whether it's workaholism or ministry or divorce or you don't even know who your parents are or whatever the pain is and then to make it even worse, there's often lies. Lies that are spoken over you about your identity. You'll never amount to anything. You're like your mom. You're so like your dad. Or just lies about God, lies about what it means to be human, lies about your sexuality, lies about the meaning of life, lies about your career, lies about the future, lies about worldview. When you are in bad presence and full of lies, it is toxic to the core because it is by spirit and truth that we are transformed. And as I'm starting to lean into the reciprocal, the other side is also true, it is by isolation and lies that we are deformed. Again, let's parse out on that. Lies and isolation, just fun stuff to chat about. Back to the Eden debacle. How does the devil bring ruin, evil, death, anarchy, injustice into the human soul and into society? Well, even before the devil lies, what does he do? He gets Eve alone. In that story, away from the presence of God, and just read it as a literary device, right? And even at the first, away from her own husband, Adam, her community. With no other voice in her head other than his voice and that of her own desires, which are easily manipulated. And then he lies. He plants these secular-esque doubts in her mind about the reality of God and his intentions, who she is, who she isn't, what is the good life, what would actually make her happy. This, my friends, is still how he brings evil and death and anarchy and pain into our world. This is his signature move. Open up your eyes and see it. Please don't live blind. Don't live in a willful denial. This is still his M.O. Think about it, this is why many of the worst things that we do that cause regret, guilt, shame, pain, repercussions are done either when we were alone or when we were in the company of people who were bad spirits, bad presences, bad relationships in our life. You ever do anything like really bad, like you just regret it, it's wreaked havoc in your life when you were just having coffee with your pastor? 
Like, man, I cannot believe, what was I thinking? You know, just 10 a.m. outside hard coffee. I just destroyed my life in one decision, you know? No. You ever do anything really lousy, like just with both your parents? Like we just decided one Christmas morning after presents were done, we wanted some more. We just went out and robbed the bank together. <laughs> you know, just me and mom and Auntie Sue, we just said, let's go do something really dumb, right? Now I know like well, my family was really, okay, I get all of that. Just, just stay with me, right? In fact, just listen, just being in the presence of a good person or spirit is by itself transformative. We become like the people that we spend time with and are in relationship with and feel felt by and entrust our mind to for better or for worse. If we know this, we can bet that the devil is even more aware of this than we are and he uses it to his own advantage, doing all he can to cut us off from Jesus and from the community of Jesus. And this is easier forever than for him with the digital age. I mean, it's just fodder. Like, it, if, if nothing else, like, even if it's not spiritually, functionally, it's so easy to cut off our mind from the presence of God and access to the truth of God and instead fill us with all sorts of other things. All we need is Wi-Fi access and a phone in our front right pocket. Think about the uproar. As long as we're talking about politics and you're already mad at me, um, think about the uproar right now over digital privacy. Again, if you know me, I'm pretty apolitical, and, um, and I'm really interested in how the right and the left, for all the talk about polarization, I think have far more in common, and I've been really influenced by Patrick Deenan. We'll talk about some of his political theory next month, and basically argues that the right and left have both redefined what it means to be human in the same way. We'll talk about it, it's, it's amazing. In the meantime, go read his book. For now, I think that one of the few, I'm always interested in what do the left and the right agree on? And one of the things they very much agree on right now is this right to privacy. And while it seems for sure a bit creepy for either the government or business to know what I'm doing on my phone all the time, still like you have to ask, why is there so much anger and uproar and people literally freaking out over this? What is it that we are trying so hard to hide? And I don't mean this in some pro-Orwellian, like, relax kind of thing. I get all of that. But I think, again, just opinion here, that one of the reasons it's such a flashpoint and it's so emotional for people is because of our obsession with privacy, autonomy, hyper-individualism, and the secrecy of sin that the devil manipulates for evil. I think it's right up his alley. So, the question, if this is right, if this hypothesis is right, that it's by the spirit and truth that we are transformed into the image of Jesus to live into all that is good and beautiful and true, and it's by isolation and lies that we are deformed into the image of the devil and the end result is ruin for our soul and our society. If that's true, then the question becomes for us as apprentices of Jesus, how do we mitigate against the isolation and lies and the devil's strategy against us and our own disordered desires and what we totally get used to and think is normal in our city with the spirit and truth of God. For that, again, we look to Jesus. Turn one more time to Luke chapter four and we'll end here today. Luke chapter four. Um, this is a great story. There's a lot here we don't have time for. We have a special guest coming in a few weeks. Sarah from Red Church in Melbourne will be here for a deep dive on Luke four. In the meantime, just read the story with me and I just wanna point one thing out at the end. Chapter four, verse one. 
Jesus, one of the first stories you read about Jesus in Luke's biography, full of the Holy Spirit, there's that, he's in the Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit out, out into the wilderness, middle of nowhere, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. There it is. He ate nothing during those days. He's fasting. And at the end of them, he was hungry. And that's when the devil said to him, if you, if you are the son of God. Now, if you've been reading through Luke, we just read a story where he was baptized in the Jordan River and literally heaven was rent open and God said to him, this is my son whom I love. And what's the devil's first line to him? If. He's questioning God, he's questioning Jesus, his identity, he's questioning all of that. If you are, if, if that's true, notice how subtle it is. Tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered with a quote from his favorite book as far as we can tell in the Old Testament because he quoted it all the time, Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Um, there's beer too, right? So. The devil, that's in the ancient Hebrew subtext, okay? <laughs> the devil then led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor, Rome, Parthia, Egypt, everybody. It's been given to me and I give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Notice Jesus does not, um, does not have a problem with that claim. Instead, he answered, it is written, another quote from Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, then the devil led him to Jerusalem, had him stand highest point of the temple. There it is again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. Two can play this game. Here's another quote. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, lift you up, not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered again, Deuteronomy for the win. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, there's a ton here we don't have time to get into. Short version, this is a retelling of the story of Genesis 3, of the story that we read just a minute ago, but Jesus here succeeds where Adam and Eve failed, where you have failed, where I have failed, where every other human being up to Jesus of Nazareth had failed in the fight against the devil and his deception and his temptation, Jesus succeeds. Now, we'll talk more about that and what his victory over the devil means in atonement theory. We'll get into all of that. For now, all I want you to notice is how does Jesus fight the devil? All right, so big picture, wars to fight, truth with lies. Okay, how? How do we do that? Like drill down for me tomorrow morning when I wake up. Notice for Jesus, it's not an angry, emotional frenzy. He's not up like waving a broadsword against the devil or whatever, like screaming at the top of his lungs. He's calm. He's calm. He's a non-anxious presence. It reads more like a conversation, not a shouting match. He's just practicing the way of himself. He's in the Aramos, or the wilderness, a practice that has come to be called silence and solitude. He's in prayer, he's fasting, his mind is just saturated in scripture, and he just stands against the onslaught of the devil. He just stands in the spirit and in the truth of his father, 
via his practices, or what we have come to call the spiritual disciplines. And this is how we, as apprentices of Jesus, fight the devil, fight the lies and the isolation of the devil with the spirit and the truth of God the exact same way. Put another way, spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. Spiritual disciplines, or what we call the practices, are how we counter the isolation and the lies of the devil with the spirit and the truth of Jesus. Philosopher from Biola I've been reading lately named Steve Porter has done some great work on how we, as material creatures, engage with an immaterial creator. And I think there are implications for how we, as material creatures, engage with an immaterial anti-creator or the devil as well, and his short answer is spiritual disciplines. He defines spiritual disciplines this way, quote, the disciplines are embodied practices. That's why we call them practices and not spiritual disciplines, because when we say spiritual, we kind of think this weird esoteric thing out there. They are habits that you do with your mind and with your body. Fasting is a way to encounter God through your stomach, right? Not out there somewhere, it's right here, right? And it's in pain. Um, are Im- the disciplines are embodied practices in a physical world whereby we present ourselves to the immaterial reality of the spirit or the presence and word or truth of Christ. Right? It's through these practices that we set our mind and our body to encounter the spirit and the truth of God. Here's Willard for the win. You thought you were getting a teaching with no Willard quote. (laughs) You thought we're nearing the end, no quote yet. Come on, you know better, just wait for it. Quote, as we first turned away from God in our thoughts, so it is that in our thoughts that the first movements toward the renovation of the heart occur. Thoughts are the place where we can and we must begin to change. All transformation or deformation starts or begins right here. The process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing those destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation in Christ moves toward a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. Or as we said last week, our mental map or that of our city or our generation or our Instagram feed for that of Jesus of Nazareth. To believe in Jesus, or better translation I think of the Greek is to trust in Jesus, is to trust his ideas about reality his mental maps, his vision of who God is, who we are, and what is the good life. It is to trust and live our entire life on the basis as if his vision is true and reality, not that of the voice in our head, our own disordered desires, whatever is normal in our city or society, to believe in Jesus isn't just to say in your head, yeah, I think he was around. It's to entrust all of your life into his vision of who is God, who are we, or I, and what is the good life. That's it. And our hope is that year over year as we apprentice under Jesus, that we begin to see the world the way that he sees the world. That we begin to think like him, think deeply and think well. That we think about God. What comes to our mind when we hear this idea of God is what came to Jesus' mind. That what comes to our mind when we think about what it is to be a human and even who I am as an individual is what came to mind when Jesus has a thought about me. And what comes to my mind and yours when we think about the good life, what would make us happy, what really is the life that is life, is the same thing that's on Jesus' mind. And listen carefully. Whose responsibility is it to curate our thought life 
to that of Jesus of Nazareth. Who's, who's respond, whose job is that? It's not a trick question. Yeah, thank you. First row, it's always the front row, always. Extra spirit of God right here. <laughs> and spittle, so sorry about that. It's ours, it's ours. It is your responsibility and mind to curate your thought life. God could, but because it is so contrary to his nature, he has chosen of his own free will to love and respect your human dignity by giving you agency, free will, volition. In layman's terms, you're in charge of your own mind. And I get that there's science and epigenetics, I get all of that, but let's just stay on the main thing. You're in charge of your own mind and even of your own body. In fact, most would argue that the mind has the potential to be the greatest area of freedom. Somebody can imprison your body, disease, death, an enemy, a tyrant, but nobody can imprison your mind except yourself and whatever source of lies that you come to believe. Your mind can be the greatest place of your freedom. It's what Viktor Frankl and many others from concentration camps in Europe said, you will take my body, but you will not take my mind. You can't have it or it will become your greatest place of slavery. It is our responsibility, and honestly, I don't think we take it seriously enough. You know, I come from a, um, I was with my parents last night, at a, my parents run a parenting ministry, and some of you know my mom and dad, and they're amazing, and we're at this fundraiser, that's why I'm tired, I was up late, and it had me thinking just about my family and my childhood, and um, you know, my parents, were both first generation followers of Jesus. My dad in particular um, came out of a kind of 1960s California rock band scene and the pendulum, and they would say this, um, just swung way over to the other side. And so I grew up in this very conservative home. And my parents are amazing, but there's just stuff there. And like honestly for years, I thought that PG stood for pure garbage. Like I, I remember I was like 15, I'm like, wait, parental guidance? I thought, it, what does that mean, right? Is this a joke? And, you know, one thing, and we laugh about that, but one thing I think my parents and the church culture that I grew up in really got right, and there's a ton they got wrong, legalism, and there's so much in there that was toxic. But one thing I think they really got right that a lot of us, in particular as millennials, in particular in a city like this, miss is the effect that lies have on the mind. So my parents and my family, we had this saying, garbage in, garbage out. Any of your fundamentalist parents say that to you? Um, and usually it was applied to TV, right? Now, I walk around and I, I'm not like eavesdropping, but I hear people chatting about a recent Game of Thrones episode after church. I think, holy cow, we are so far on the other end of the spectrum. People like warn about the danger of Pharisees. I'm like, have you been to our church in Portland? We have like one of them, and they're great. They tithe and volunteer really well, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Pharisees is just not our problem. It is just not, it is, is honestly almost a non-issue in our city and in our church. Think about how far we have come. The prophet Habakkuk said that God's eyes are too pure to even look at evil, right? So garbage in, garbage out is a pithy way of saying what now we know is true from neurobiology and science and psychology, much less spiritual and human wisdom for millennia, that everything that enters our mind has an effect on us, 
for good or for evil, what we give access to our minds will shape the person that we become. What we give our attention to on a regular basis will shape, grow the trajectory of our entire being. This is why in an entertainment society on the west coast of the United States of America, our choice of entertainment or lack of choice is essential to our spiritual formation. I mean, just do the math. The average American is in front of a TV for four to five hours a day, stat, true stat, all over, many of them, and the average millennial is on his or her phone for five and a half hours a day. When, when, when do we even work? I literally read a study a few weeks ago that said the average American now, between YouTube and email, actually works two and a half hours a day. Come on, I work at least three and a half. I mean, it's ridiculous, <laughs> you know? My point is, listen carefully, many of us spend hours each day, if not each week, filling our mind with lies that cut off our mind and with it our whole person from God's spirit or presence, and only a few minutes a day or even a week filling our mind with truth and our body with God's presence. And the tragic result is if you do that long enough, it doesn't matter, you can be here every single Sunday night. Two hours is nothing against a week where your mind is somewhere else. That doesn't stand a chance. You do that long enough and we start to resemble the image of the devil more than the image of Jesus. We start to see the world and move in the world and inhabit our body much more like a Western, secular, progressive Portlander than like an apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth. And you're not the victim and neither am I. It is our responsibility to turn our attention to God over and over again, all through the day, all through the week, to think of him, to think deeply and well of him. Jesus won't do this for us. Think of our spiritual formation. He'll help us, but he has so much love and respect for us. Think of our spiritual formation paradigm that we've built our entire church around, right? We say this all the time. We're transformed by teaching. Really, a better word there, I think, is truth. Teaching is the medium. Truth is the message. By practice or by the practices or spiritual disciplines, by community and by the Holy Spirit. This, of course, happens over time and through the hard knocks of life. Now, this diagram is an attempt to capture our working theory of transformation in both our part and God's part, our responsibility and God's responsibility. If you were to re-diagram this with the same working theory of transformation, but separate out our part from God's part, it would look more like this. Our part is the practices in the community. God's part is the spirit and the truth by which we are transformed. So our part, our responsibility, what God will not do for you, out of love and respect for you, is we posture our mind and our body before God and we just say, God, here I am. And we create space for his spirit, his presence, relationship with him, and his truth, his reality, his meaning, to transform us from the inside out. This, my friends, is how we are transformed not by willpower. I'm all for willpower. It's great when it works, which is about 1% of the time, eh, 5% of the time. It does not work against deeply ingrained habits of sin in our mind and our body. How do we overcome a pornography addiction or a deeply ingrained habit of anger in our body? Not through like, I'm promised to not get angry this week at my kids. 
How well is that working for you? I can't do that. That's outside of my capacity. I don't have a light switch to just say, I will never lose my temper with my son again. What I can do, what is well within my capacity, what I have, like I have the capacity to wake up in the morning, to read a psalm, to open my mind to God. One of my favorite prayers every morning is just to say, God, what would be pleasing to you? And let God fill my mind and imagination. Usually takes about 30 seconds and it's usually the frame of my entire day. I have the capacity to get my body into my living room because we host and show up for the Lord's Supper with my community every Tuesday night. I have the capacity to come to church on Sunday. Tomorrow I have a road trip. I have the capacity to put in my podcast and listen to truth into my ears. Like these are just practices of Jesus, community of Jesus. I can do that. I can't flip a switch and not have a father moon, father wound or a mother wound or an anger problem or an addiction. I can't do that. What I can do, I can set aside a day to be alone with God. I can do that. And I can create space for the spirit and the truth to transform me. I can't flip a switch and become the person that I want to become. But I can read through the New Testament every year and meditate and fill my mind with the truth of Jesus' teachings. I can read a little pericope or just a little story from Jesus' life every morning or every night before I go to bed, I can lean over to my bedside table and just read a little letter. It takes 30 seconds from Frank Laubach about practicing the presence of God and I can fill my mind with God as I sleep. I can wake up in the morning and before I get out of bed, just say, good morning, Father, good morning, Son, good morning, Holy Spirit. I can do that. And if you do that long enough, and there's no quick fix, it's not like, oh, three weeks in. <laughs> it takes a little longer, you know, more like four weeks. But um, <laughs> you do that long enough, you do that in community, not alone, and you watch what the spirit and the truth of God will transform you from the inside out. But remember, spiritual disciplines are not just the ones we think about at church. Netflix is a spiritual discipline. Your friendship with your boyfriend is a spiritual discipline. These are all habits of mind and body. Do they open you up to truth and spirit or to isolation and lies? This has got to be stronger than that. The way of Jesus has got to be stronger than the way of the devil. And this is our responsibility. Jesus will give us grace, capacity far beyond our own, and he will transform us if we just say yes to him. That's why Jesus will not coerce he will not control your thought life. I won't. I would if I could. I think I'd do a great job with your thought life, but <laughs> I unfortunately don't have that capacity. Jesus does, and he's made the decision to respect you and to invite you into his presence and his truth. To end, our practice for the next few weeks is all up on practicingtheway.org slash fighting. It's just so fun to say, slash fighting. Maybe it's just the inner pacifist in me. I'm like, yes, we finally get to kill something. Um, <laughs> most of us are still working on last week's practice. A little housekeeping here just for a minute. Um, my community, we had a great time Tuesday night with the, the, the exercise that we had for you last week around listening prayer to identify lies and speak truth. And I was in my triad and I think in the 20 minute listening prayer exercise, I came up with nine lies that I'm believing and we only had time for one guy to share one each. So we have nine weeks more of the practice. Um, all that to say, if you wanna take two, three, four weeks to stay on that exercise and repeat that
that's fine. Um, and then in the coming weeks, we do have a few more practices that are up on the website that are just core spiritual disciplines that we think are key in the fight for truth over lies. We have a week on scripture reading where you just read through Ephesians together as a community, and then each morning that week, you just read one chapter. There's six chapters in Ephesians. And then we have a week on scripture memorization, which is new for a lot of us just to fill our minds. So like when that lie comes, when that deceptive idea comes, you just have truth right there to combat a week on listening prayer. That's the practice for the week ahead. It's all up on the site. To end, Paul, we'll just end with this. Paul has this throwaway line in his letter to the Corinthians that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Tragically, a lot of us are or have been unaware of his schemes. And so our intent for the last two weeks has been to expose his schemes to isolate you and speak lies into your mind about who God is, who you are, what is the good life, that play to your disordered desires. It is totally normal in our sinful city. Our intent has just been to like show it for what it is. Um, because I grew up on G.I. Joe, and at the end, title of the 80s, at the end of every single episode, what's the line? Knowing half all of you that are nearing 30 are like, I remember that. Knowing is half the battle. It's ingrained in me. Like what you give your attention to is the person you become, right? And there's truth in that. Knowing is half the battle, but still, it's just half. We still have to fight. But thanks to Jesus' example, we see that to fight the devil, we don't have to like stand up on the top of the steeple and like map out the city and like cast out the demon of Knob Hill and walk down Birdsign with the broadsword and like speaking tongues outside of Kova or whatever, like, um, just please stop for a little bit, right? We just calm, firm, quiet confidence. We stand in the spirit and the truth of God. To end, let's just do that right here and right now. Let's stand together and let's just read a few scriptures, a few commands from the New Testament about how we are to stand in the spirit and the truth. Just read this out loud with me, Ephesians 6. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. James 4. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Peter 5. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.